It's a little bit different today. If you're new, this is uh, something we do on an annual basis, and it's an opportunity for it to be a little bit more interactive. How about we open up with a word of prayer? Andy, you want to pray as we begin? God, we thank you for an opportunity to come into your house, uh, the opportunity to worship you with our friends and family and the church body. And uh, now we just pray that we would hear from you. We would learn from your word and that we would uh, grow closer to you and have an opportunity to, to learn more uh, today than we knew yesterday. So uh, we thank you for this opportunity. Pray that we would make the most of it. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, by the way, um, your questions may not always get answered in this service. They might get answered in the next two services. We'll try to string all these services together when we archive it so that you'll be able to see all the different questions that came in over the course of the three services. So while I've been doing all this talking, do you have any question there sure. you want to t- jump in and take? All right. One of the questions that uh, we get a lot um, that is here on the screen, what is the most effective way to witness at school or at work? So the idea would be, I guess, for any of us, we are um, a light in a dark world. And so the question is, how can I be a good witness in the environment that I'm, that I'm in? Um, one thing I think about when I think about being a witness, um, a lot of times we think about what should we say, and we put a lot of pressure on ourselves. I've got to say the right thing to my coworkers, say the right thing um, to my classmates. I've got to defend myself. We feel like we have to have a doctorate in theology so that we can like defend our faith um, to the fullest. I think one of the best ways to be a witness, obviously, is to follow Jesus. You're going to lose your witness really quick if you're not a follower of Jesus. If you're not trying to live like him, um, then no one's going to consider you as a follower. You should be distinct from your um, classmates, from your co-workers, in the way that you follow Jesus. And then secondly, as your witness, I would just really encourage people to listen, um, to ask questions, to try to get a sense of where they're coming from, what, what is their faith, what do they believe. A lot of times, again, we put the pressure on ourselves to defend our faith. Listen and try to get a sense of where they're coming from. Usually there's a reason why people don't follow Jesus. And if we can find out what that is, I mean, obviously, you think about it, we're, we're in this intellectual debate with someone trying to convince them to follow Jesus and convince them to study the scripture. And they've made a decision when they were 10 years old to stop following Jesus because their mom died of cancer. So unless we listen and find out what their story is and find out where they're coming from, we, we probably won't be a very good witness. So pray, be a good listener, ask questions, and follow Jesus. And uh, I think usually that's the, the best way to be a witness in your environment. Um, sometimes I'm going to refer you to the teaching library if I know that I covered this rather than just restating some things. But somebody asked a question about how were the books of the Bible chosen How can we have faith that the New Testament is God's word when there were so many human decisions involved in its, its, I think the person meant, compilation and translation? Uh, This question is based on concerns expressed by a seeking friend. So um, I want to just ask you to go. You can go on our website at cornerstonechapel.net. One of the tabs at the top is teaching. So you can go to the teaching library, and then you can search for any particular teaching Um, And when I was in Psalm 119, um, probably two years ago, Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible, right at the center of your Bible, has a lot to say about the Word of God, the law of the Lord, um, and Scripture in general. And I took a whole Sunday to just talk about how 
scripture came to be, how it was selected, why we have certain books in the Bible that we do, why uh, Catholics have uh, some different books in, in their Bibles than what we do. And, and so I, I probably would rather refer you there than to give uh, too long of an answer to this question. So you can just uh, archive on the teaching library Psalm 119, and you can probably find a lot better answers uh, than, than I could answer in just a couple of minutes. Um, somebody else asked, how can we as Christians best be a voice in politics in a way that comes across as the light of Christ and not just being perceived as against things? And that's a good question. Uh, unfortunately, I think it's going to be somewhat unavoidable in, in seeming that you are against things when, in fact, some things politically and culturally are trending in a direction that is contrary to God's word and, and, and thus contrary to the values that we hold. So when we start speaking about things um, because those things are contrary to God's word or our values that are aligned with God's word, it will just naturally come across like we're just against everything. I, I, some of that's going to be unavoidable. I think you know, one of the most important things is that you always come across in a spirit of meekness and with love. Um, you're, not, you're not trying to just, quote, win an argument. You're trying to represent Christ. And you have to always be mindful that even in political or cultural discussions with friends, neighbors, and coworkers, you want to be sure that you're coming across in a way that is um, a good example of Christ. You know, don't blow your witness you know, just for the sake of trying to get across truth. Um, I, I taught uh, several years ago, um, you know, in relation to same-sex marriage. And one of the things I think the church has to be careful about, and, and I think this falls in the category of political things and cultural things, is, um, is maintaining what the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, always um, speaks about in, in twin terms. Grace and truth, grace and truth. You know, when Paul wrote most of his epistles, it contained that twin terminology, grace and truth, grace and truth. And it's always in that order. You will not find ever in the Bible where it says truth and grace. It always says grace and truth. So grace has to lead in order for truth to ever really be received. Sometimes as Christians, we want to, we want to present truth and we want to make sure we know, we, we have people know what we think is right. And so truth takes the lead and then maybe we try to clean it up with grace, but it's not supposed to be in that order. You're supposed to come across graciously. We're supposed to come across not argumentatively, not abrasively, but in the grace of Christ, with the example of Christ. And, and then still, you know, speak truth, but you have to wrap it in the love of the Lord. It has to be preceded by grace. Otherwise, people aren't really going to be interested in, in, in your truth. Yeah, Mandy. Um, I have a question about the Holy Spirit. And so it's, it's a good question. And I think it's something we should all be aware of. The, the Holy Spirit, when Jesus went to heaven, he, he told his disciples, I'm going to leave with you the Holy Spirit. So when we think about the Holy Spirit, it's, some, it's what dwells, the part of the Trinity that dwells with us on earth. Um, and it's easier to understand who the Holy Spirit is by understanding his role. So when you look through scripture, there's a lot of different roles that the Holy Spirit has in our life. And so we, the Bible wants us to rely on the Holy Spirit that lives within us. The Holy Spirit guides us. It leads us. It teaches us. 
Um, it convicts us. So when you think about I'm, when I'm convicted of sin, when I tell a lie or when I steal something, I'm convicted. That's the Holy Spirit convicting us. But it's not just conviction. The Bible says the Holy Spirit can encourage us. It can assist us when we're weak. Um, it can remind us. So think about things. Um, I, I remembered a, a song that I used to sing when I was like 8, 10 years old the other day, um, a Bible song, and was singing that song. And I just think the Holy Spirit can remind us of things, of Bible verses that we forget, um, songs, worship songs that we've forgotten. And so it, it can be that still, small voice that just says, no, God is with you. No, God does love you. God does care about you. Um, that can be the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So a lot of times when you think about the Holy Spirit, you think um, mysterious, mystical, but when you understand the role of the Holy Spirit, it makes a lot more sense. Someone who is with us to lead us, teach us, guide us, assist us, pray for us, encourage us, uh, convict us, and remind us of those things that we've learned um, sometimes long ago. So that's the role of the Holy Spirit in the life, and it's available for, for believers. That's the, the role of the Holy Spirit for, for you when you've made a decision. I'm going to follow Jesus. He said, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit to help you while you're on this earth. So I'll follow up with that question because there's another question about the gifts of the Spirit like healing. Are the gifts of the Spirit like healing and speaking in tongues still available to us today? Um, And so my answer is going to differ from um, what you might hear at at other churches that would otherwise be known theologically as cessationists. Now, when I say that, there are some churches that are cessationist in doctrine, which means that they believe that the gifts of the Spirit ceased at the end of the apostolic age. In other words, when the last of the apostles died, those particular signs and wonder gifts ceased at the end of that, of that era, the apostolic age. Um, we're not cessationists here at Cornerstone. Uh, we still believe the gifts of the Spirit are available as God distributes those gifts. Not everybody has Every gift and any specific gift that God chooses to give is God's determination. Um, There's not one particular gift that marks a person as having been filled with the Spirit. There's a reason in your Bibles that 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is sandwiched between 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. Chapter 12 lists some of those signs and, and wonder gifts of the Spirit. And chapter 14 talks about its proper use and nestled right between those chapters is what the Bible, what we refer to in the Bible as the love chapter, because Paul writes in first Corinthians 13, if I, you know, speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I'm just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I'm just making noise. First Corinthians 13 is really about love. That is the real sign that someone has been baptized by the Holy Spirit. But otherwise, we believe, yes, the gifts are still available today. Now, why is it some churches say they're not, and why is it we say they are still available? It really hinges on one verse in your Bible. And sadly, this debate has come down to one verse, and it's 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and it is uh, verse 10, and it says, But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. So there in 1 Corinthians 13, it's talking about different gifts of the Spirit. And then it says, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. So cessationists believe that that verse refers to the completion of the canon of Scripture. That when the Bible was completed and the apostolic age ended, then the imperfect gifts pass away. 
But if you look at the context of that passage, you also see that Paul talks about how when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, you know, I acted like a child. But when I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. And, and he says, now I know in part, we have limited knowledge on earth. But he says, then I shall know fully as I am fully known. So he speaks about a time when he's going to be in the presence of the Lord, all believers will eventually be in the presence of the Lord. And he, and then he says, and then when perfection comes imperfect, the imperfect passes away. In other words, when we are in our perfected state in the presence of the Lord, then the gifts of the spirit are no longer necessary. Why do, why do I need the gifts of, of healing when I'm standing in the presence of the healer? You know, why do I need interpretation when now I know in part, but then I shall know fully as I'm fully known when we're in the presence of the Lord in our perfected state, there's no need for the, for the body of Christ to demonstrate the gifts of the Spirit because we are in the presence of the giver of all gifts. And so at that point, the imperfect gifts pass away. So it depends if you believe that 1 Corinthians 13.10 refers to the completion of the Bible or the completion of the saint in perfection in God's presence as to how you interpret whether the gifts are available today. We here at Cornerstone believe that that verse in its context refers to the completed state the perfected state of the believer in the presence of the Lord. Thus, until that day, when we're all before the Lord, the gifts of the Spirit are still available today. Now, again, I would refer you to the teaching library on Acts chapter 2, when when I taught about Pentecost and the gifts of the Spirit, or 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, because there's proper uses of the gifts and improper uses, you know, the reason for certain gifts and, and their function, uh, so I don't want to take time to go into all of that. Um, but in terms of their availability, they are still available today. And I'll take one more question and give you a little more time if you want to look up something, Andy. Somebody asked, are the Jews still God's chosen people after rejecting the Christ? Um, I would refer you to Romans eleven twenty five and 26 on that. Because in Romans eleven twenty five, Paul says that Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles have come in. And then, next verse, Romans eleven twenty six, and then all Israel will be saved. What Paul tells us there is that, yes, the majority of Jews have rejected Jesus. That does not mean that they are no longer God's chosen people in the sense that God still has a redemptive purpose for them. He did in the past by bringing Jesus through uh, uh, the Jewish race. And he has a plan in the future. For the Jewish people, because Romans eleven twenty six says, and thus all Israel will be saved. In other words, there will come a time when Christ returns and the Jews who have survived the tribulation period. Zechariah chapter 14 talks about how they will look on the one that they have pierced and they will weep like, like those weeping at Ramah. And, and in other words, they will then be convicted that the Messiah that they had rejected for all these years is actually the Messiah and that they will put their faith and trust in Jesus. So there will come a day when, when all Israel will be saved. It doesn't mean every single Jew. It just means at that time when Christ returns, those who, the remnant of the Jewish people who look upon the one that they pierced, I mean, in a sense, we've all pierced Jesus, um, and they will then put their faith and trust in him. So God's not done with the Jewish people. There are thousands of Jews who are still coming to faith in, in Jesus Christ. Um, you know, the, the touring company that we use when we go to Israel is Sarel Tours. Uh, uh, Shmulek, uh, uh, Sammy Shmadia, whose father started the company, 
planted 70 Messianic congregations throughout Israel. Why? Because many Jews are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And uh, th- that is a wonderful thing that is happening. But just because they have in the past and presently most Jews reject Christ does not mean that God has rejected them. They've only experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles come in. God is giving a window to the Goyim, to the Gentiles, for us to be able to get saved. Then he deals again with Israel and brings them to a place of saving knowledge. So he's not done with them. We got a couple questions on healing um, and just the idea of if I'm sick, does that suggest that I don't have enough uh, faith? So um, we would teach that even Christians get sick sometimes. So the idea would be um, there isn't any formula in Scripture that talks about if you do this, this, and this, you'll never get sick or you won't have, ever have any disease um, or physically God will take care of you. So um, we don't believe that you have to have um, enough faith or there's a formula. Um, when Jesus would heal people, he would often use different methods. We actually believe that was intentional um, so that we wouldn't just follow a certain method every time. There's a story in the Gospels where Jesus uses mud to heal a blind man. Some of you remember that story. If that's the way Jesus healed everyone in the New Testament, you realize how expensive mud would be? Uh, We would all be looking for that healing mud. Where do I get that healing mud? Is it coming out of the Jordan River? What is that, um, that, that special healing mud that can heal me of all my sicknesses? So the idea is we have to be very careful that um, we have faith that God can heal us because he can. He can do anything. But we don't have faith that he necessarily will because we can't necessarily determine what God does and doesn't do. Sometimes he heals, sometimes he doesn't. Even in the New Testament, when we go to, to, uh, to Israel, we go to the pool of Bethesda, a very large pool the size of an Olympic swimming pool. Jesus goes, the story tells us, and he goes and he heals one man. Well, when you read that scripture, the pool of Bethesda had hundreds, maybe even thousands of sick people around that pool, but he decided to heal one. Why did he decide to heal one? We don't really know. Job, when his family um, was killed, Job asked God five times, why? Why did this happen? Why, do I ha- why, did this, why am I suffering? Why is this going on? God didn't answer him. The biggest question for Job was, can you still trust me even when things don't go your way? And so we realize as Christians, we rarely grow when we're comfortable. So a lot of times sickness, things that happen in our lives that cause suffering also draws us closer to God. And I think God allows that in our lives sometimes for an actual purpose to actually bring us closer to him. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. It would be very difficult for Scripture to have any purpose for encouraging Christians to persevere through suffering if Christians were never um, to suffer. Um, So we don't believe that you can have, if you have a certain level of faith, you will never suffer in this world. And so you need to be careful with that mentality or that thinking that I'm sick or I have this chronic illness. Maybe it's because I don't have enough faith. We wouldn't believe that at all and don't believe that uh, the Scripture teaches that. One, one other quick question that we got in, and this is a, this is a common question as well. Um, we have online services. Most of you realize that you could have stayed home and watched online in your pajamas. Um, or if you go on vacation or you travel um, online, we, we have teachings online, and you can watch live, or you can download our teaching um, 
and you can watch any service. Usually downlo- uh, the service is downloaded by the next day. Um, that's a wonderful um, opportunity for people who aren't here to be able to uh, listen to God's word and, and to hear his teaching. The question that came in just said, hey, we live in Leesburg. What do you think about us just staying home and, and watching the service, as tempting as they may, that may be? We would encourage anyone who lives in the Loudoun County area to come to Cornerstone. We think there are so many benefits. In, in, in the book of Hebrews, it says, don't stop meeting together. The assumption is there's something when the body of Christ comes together, there's, there's encouragement, there's opportunities for prayer with other believers. Um, you meet other new Christians, you meet other believers, and, and there's something that happens um, when we are together with other believers that you're not going to be able to get uh, from your couch. Obviously, that opportunity is available, and we don't want you to feel guilty if you use that opportunity when you're sick or when you're traveling or when you're on vacation, but we would encourage everyone. If you're in the area, come, come to Cornerstone. Opportunities to serve, opportunities to, to greet others, opportunities to be a part of the body of Christ. And, and God talks about how important that is and doesn't, doesn't want us to stop meeting until we're not able to do so. And so that would be the barometer. If I'm not able to come in, I get the advantage of watching from home. If I'm able to, I should come in so that I can be in fellowship with other believers. So somebody writes a question in, from Genesis. It seems impossible for Noah to get a pair of every animal on the ark. How can you believe that these stories are true? Aren't they just moral lessons? Um, I would encourage you to um, check out a book that you could probably still get on Amazon. It might be out of print now, but it's called The Beginning of the World by Dr. Henry Morris. And it's a scientific look at the first ten chapters of Genesis. And um, it, is, it is believed that at the time of the flood... There were only an estimated 18,000 species of animals in, in the world at the time. And uh, if you took a pair, 36,000, you could get um, 36,000 animals on one-third of the ark. So, look, it just becomes a, a matter of what do you believe? Um, there, are, there are things in the creation story that obviously take faith to believe. But that is true about anything that is a scientific theory. Um, You know, I've quoted this often just to give an an example of how when when people believe that evolutionary theory is more believable than the creation story, um, quoting Dr. Francis Crick, who was one of the uh, co-discoverers of the double helical shape of the DNA. And Dr. Crick, who's not a believer in an attempt to answer the question that has constantly um, confused scientists. And the question is, what is the origin of life? How do you explain the origin of life? Dr. Francis Crick said, quote, we should concede that the earth was seeded with spores from aliens, end quote. Now, that's a Nobel Prize winning scientist who said, my explanation for the origin of life is that it was seeded by aliens. Okay, so, in other words, you're going to have to just decide, what do you believe? you believe that? I mean, that's, that's ludicrous to me. Um, or do you believe the Genesis account of creation? And so I don't think that the flood and Noah and all of that was just good moral lessons. I think that the, these are things that actually happened. Um, but because none of us was there, we accept things by faith all the time. Uh, and so that's a story that um, 
that is a story that you just simply would accept by faith, just like you would accept a lot of other things that scientists are expecting you to accept by faith, too. That, you know, we're all here because we, we crawled out of the pond, and then we sprouted legs, and then we ended up walking hunchback for millions of years until finally we straightened up, got a briefcase, and got a job. I mean, when I was a kid, when I was a kid, you know, you know the progressive, you know, that, that pictorial thing about the origin of life and then man, and, and, you know, he went from just this little amoeba and then crawled out and then looks like a little tadpole and then sprout legs and then, you know, and then it's a chimpanzee and, and then they get less hairy and, and stand more upright. And then the last guy was walking with a briefcase. You remember that? I mean, I'm old enough to remember that whole picture scheme. And, and I just remember sitting there in, in school thinking, how, how do you go from crawling out of a pond to getting a job with a briefcase? I don't know how that works. Uh, that takes a lot of faith to believe. Well, so where do you want to exercise faith? Uh, the Bible account is also something that you need to exercise faith to believe. Um, and I'll answer one more question. How can the separation of church and state versus voting with your faith go hand in hand. So I, I have mentioned this on many occasions, but this may be somebody who's new to the church, so I'm, I'm going to say this again. There is no statement in the Constitution, Declaration of Independence, or Bill of Rights that talks about the separation of church and state. That phrase is simply not in any of the founding documents of our nation. We have been told to believe that even though it's not in any of our founding documents. It was found one time in a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote to some Baptists in Danbury, Connecticut. And they had a question about how we as Christians should influence the political world as Christians and how we should be involved. And Jefferson wrote about using that phrase, the separation of church and state, to actually encourage the Baptists to recognize that the wall of separation was to keep the government out of the church, but not so that the church would stay out of government. And we've just gotten it completely backwards, and people believe that that separation of of church and state phrase is somewhere in our founding documents. It's not. It was an an offhanded comment that Jefferson made to the Baptist Convention in Danbury, Connecticut, and But it's become like this foundational truth in our culture that has been embraced, and it just simply is not a part of our foundational documents. And so the separation of church and state is, is really something that is contrived. The First Amendment protects the church from the invasion of government into the church. But we've turned it upside down, and we think it really means that the church should not be involved in government. What happened to muzzle the church was something in 1954, I believe was the date, the Johnson Amendment when uh, then Senator uh, LBJ, Senator Johnson, before he became president, introduced legislation in the Senate that got passed, the Johnson Amendment, that muzzled pastors from endorsing candidates from the pulpit. Um, but that that is an unconstitutional law. It's never been tried. It's never been tested. Uh, I have some attorneys in our church who want me to keep pushing the envelope because they want to take it to the Supreme Court and get it overturned. Um, and, and I'm just not want, really wanting to be a guinea pig for the Supreme Court. 
But at the same time, I'm not going to hold back from what was the original intent of our founding fathers, freedom of speech, the church being protected from the invasion of government, not the other way around. So, you know, listen, don't believe the lie. Just continue to share your values and make your faith something that governs your life in all aspects of your life. And you, you know me, if you've been here long enough, you know, just really take advantage of the freedom that we have in our, in our great republic and, and let your, your values and your voices be heard. So be involved. Right. We got a question. Um, what advice would you give to a new Christian? So the idea of being a new Christian, someone who's made a decision, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to repent, uh, confess, acknowledge my sin. Um, ask God to forgive me of my sin, and I'm going to make a decision to follow him. And the question is, what advice would you give that person? Um, I think it's, it's the same advice that I would give to all Christians. So it's the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, um, regardless if you're new in your faith in the first few months or you've been a Christian for 30 years, the gospel is still the same and still is important. So um, when we think about new Christians, we, um, we look back in Acts chapter 2 when there were new believers um, that uh, were converted. The Bible says they devoted themselves to the teaching of God's word. They devoted themselves to fellowship with other believers and they devoted themselves to prayer. So those are the type of things that are important for a new believer and would be important for someone who's, again, been a Christian um, for 30 years of, of their life. Um, you, you have to study God's Word, and the reason we do that here at Cornerstone is because we need to know who God is. What is His character? He, he's not necessarily familiar to us. He doesn't necessarily make sense to us. His grace, His forgiveness, His love for us doesn't necessarily make sense. So we have to study it. We have to learn it. We have to understand it so that we can believe it in this world. And then they devoted themselves to prayer. That Just that idea that I'm connecting with God. That God wants a personal relationship with me. I can talk to him just like you would have a relationship when you talk to your friends. And then that sense that uh, Christians need to be connected to other people. Um, we shouldn't be isolated. Um, we need to connect with others. We need to share with others. When we connect with others, we realize that we're not alone. We realize that our sin is not our, only our sin. Um, Satan wants to isolate us and make us believe we're the only ones that struggle. We're the only ones that doubt. We're the only ones that get tempted. And then when we connect with others like they did in the early church, they found out we're not alone. We, we deal with the similar things. We can walk through this with, uh, with one another. That's why we encourage um, everyone in the church to get involved in a small group or a K group so that you can get together with other people and go through life, kind of journey through life with other people. So advice to new Christians would be the same advice to every Christian. Um, study God's word, um, pray, and, uh, and connect with, with other believers. All right, we have time probably for just, um, I'll hit two more and then we'll, we'll be done. Um, this is probably a follow-up to the other question about Israel. Why do we support Israel if they are so unjustly violent against their adversaries? Um, I don't want anybody to think that we support everything Israel does any more than I support everything America does. Right? I mean, there are plenty of laws in America that I'm opposed to. Um, there are plenty of things that we do as a country ourselves that I'm uncomfortable with and opposed to. There are plenty of things that Israel does that I would disagree with. I'm speaking in broader terms that God has not forsaken the Jewish people as a race of people, as a, as a nation in general. I'm sure there are plenty of things that God is um, bothered about concerning Israel like he's bothered about concerning America and every country. 
So this is not some carte blanche like everything Israel does is fine because they're God's chosen people and they can just do whatever they want. Um, There's blood on their hands. There's blood on our hands. There are different things that have happened in the course of time in history that are egregious. Um, But I'm speaking in general terms about God's ultimate purpose still for the Jewish people and for the nation of Israel that he that he loves. And um, and that doesn't mean that that God accepts or or that we accept everything that Israel has done in in terms of their actions against uh, uh, certain adversaries. So the last question I'll try to tackle real quickly here because we're out of time is um, is this we are a military family. We have served in every war since the founding of our beloved homeland of America. We have a great deal of blood on our hands. Will we still be welcomed home in heaven, having taken many lives in mortal hand-to-hand combat? So, um, there is an obvious commandment in the Bible. It's commandment number six. You shall not murder. Murder is different biblically than killing it's not, it's not semantics. They're actually different words in the Bible for murder and for killing. And in Romans chapter 13, where it talks about how God has established government as a means of authority, it, it says in Romans 13, he says, For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right. And he will commend you for he, meaning those in authority, the government, for he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for he does not, he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant and agent of wrath to bring punishment on, on the wrongdoers. So I've had this conversation with many people who serve the military, who serve in law enforcement, who in the line of duty in serving their country or serving their community, in military or law enforcement, have had to kill. Um, that's different from murder. And so, you know, all death is regrettable, but in terms of what is sinful and um, what is wrong, murder is wrong, murder is sinful, killing in the line of duty or on behalf of government that you are serving um, again, you know, no war is pleasant. All death is terrible in that sense. But that is not a sin when it is done in, in the context of serving your country or performing a duty in the line of duty. Um, the, the government bears the sword. This is what Romans 13 is talking about. And for that reason, in the line of duty or in, or in military, um, sometimes the regrettable thing happens in terms of killing, but that is different for murder. So I don't want this person to feel like, you know, having served the country hand to hand combat. Um, now they won't be welcome to heaven. Uh, if, if you know Christ is your savior, that's how you get welcome to heaven. If you are serving your country, um, that's not uh, an unpardonable sin. That might obviously leave, you know, there's PTSD, there's regret, there's remorse, there's all that kind of stuff you might have to deal with, but it is not a mortal sin when you're doing it in the line of duty or serving your country. I got a, a question just as simple as why pray? And so I like this question because I've, I've had to struggle with this question personally, just the sense of if, if God already knows what's in my heart, 
if he already knows the future, then, then really what, what is prayer all about? And so um, it, I think it's important for us all to realize prayer isn't just for me to ask for things. It's just this sense of when I need something, I pray. When I'm in trouble, I pray. There is a sense of that. God does ask us to come to him just like children come to a parent. But there's a sense in Scripture that talks about how prayer brings us closer to the Lord. It builds our relationship with God. Jesus obviously um, prayed, um, and yet uh, he knew uh, all those things as well. So he was modeling for us just this sense of we pray to humble ourselves because we realize we don't have all the answers, so it's a humbling thing to pray. Um, We pray to build our relationship with God, and we also pray um, an important part of prayer is the aspect of listening. When you're, when you're quiet before the Lord. So sometimes when we think of prayer, we just think of talking. Um, prayer can also be that time when we're quiet before the Lord and we're allowing God to talk to us as well. So there's a lot of different reasons um, to pray, but I like the question, and I think we should, be, we should consider that because if we only think of prayer in just terms of when I need something, it will really limit the amount of time that we actually spend uh, quiet before the Lord. So we look at it as a way just to actually build our faith, humble ourselves before him, and, uh, and grow and then listen to him because he's actually uh, the one that has the answers. Okay, um, why don't we just jump right into the, the battle here? Because we're getting a lot of questions about President Trump and impeachment <laughs> and a biblical response to all that. And so here's a question. Do you agree with Christianity today that President Trump should be impeached? How many of you are familiar with the article that Christianity Today ran? Okay. Um, I I heard that they ran the story, and so I quickly read through it, you know, just kind of scanned it. Um, You know, Christianity Today is something that Billy Graham founded, and his son Franklin has come out denouncing the magazine and this article. So let me start by... um, giving a a little biblical perspective to government and to, in particular, a person that we have as our president. Um, In the Bible, I'm amazed at the different people that God used. God used some pretty righteous people and God used some pretty unrighteous people to accomplish his purposes. Someone that I think is a parallel that I um, actually thought before he was elected, or right around the time that, that President Trump got elected, in the Bible is King Cyrus. Now, if you're not familiar with King Cyrus, he was a, a pagan Persian king he rose at the time of the Medo-Persian Empire after they defeated the Babylonians. Remember, King Nebuchadnezzar was a Babylonian king whom God used. He also was a pagan man. That it seems maybe at the end of the book of Daniel, or the middle of the book of Daniel, that we might see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. It seems that Nebuchadnezzar has a conversion experience. Not sure. Well, only time will tell when, when, when we get to heaven and... Um, if Nebuchadnezzar's there. But a couple of kings later is Cyrus. Cyrus was not a believer, um, did not worship God, 
But God used this man to accomplish God's purposes. And he caused King Cyrus to be favorably disposed to the Jewish people, such that Cyrus issues this edict to allow the Jews to return to their homeland after they had been kept in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. And the thing about Cyrus is that here he's a man who was not close to the Lord, but a man that God used as a tool to bring um, a benefit and a blessing to the Jewish people. So using that as like an historical parallel, um, I see Trump in a similar light. You know, I don't, I, I know some people who, who know him pretty closely. Um, I was at a, a dinner about a week before Christmas with Terry and about a, a dozen people who were part of the presidential um, evangelical advisory, uh, people I don't normally hang out with, people whose theology I, I don't even agree with. Uh, Paula White was at the next table. Uh, Jensen Franklin was at the next table. Um, and um, after the dinner was over, uh, Terry and I and Tony Perkins and his wife were taken by the Secret Service to have a private um, meeting. I can't even tell you who, but it was one of the top cabinet um, members in President Trump's cabinet and had a time of about a half an hour to 45 minutes of just prayer and meeting and private discussion. So I, I know enough of people who are close to know that this president is the most favorably disposed to Christians and the evangelical community than any president in my lifetime. I just know that as a fact. Now, that doesn't justify all of his behavior. That doesn't justify some of these reckless tweets. That doesn't justify some of his, um, I, I think it's pretty well documented, you know, behavior in the past and some moral issues that I, that I would have issue with. Okay. But so, so it is with Cyrus in the sense that God can use human vessels to accomplish God's purposes through imperfect people who don't even necessarily claim a relationship with him that God causes to be favorably disposed to God's people for the advancement of God's purposes. You see how that works. So when people, so when Christianity Today comes out about the impeachment and other people are, are, you know, like Trump haters and like, you know, why isn't the evangelical community more outraged about this or about that? You know, my feeling in general is that if, if God is using a, a human vessel to advance God's purposes and causing, uh, causing him to be favorably disposed to Christians and values that are important to Christians... Um, I, I see God's hand in that. And so I'm not one to just quickly dismiss. Now, the impeachment thing, you know, that's, that's a, we have a, we have a tool for, for this. There's a process to go through. Um, the House gets to accuse, the Senate gets to either acquit or, or condemn. Um, unfortunately, right now, um, if anybody were to ask about where real obstruction of justice is, I think it's what Nancy Pelosi is doing by not handing the impeachment to the Senate. Let them make a decision. Why isn't she handing it to the Senate? So 
I don't, you know, I don't know all of the, I mean, I watched a lot of the hearings, like maybe some of you did. Um, I find it troubling that, you know, this is the third president to be impeached in our history, and this is the only time it's been split down party lines. You always had at least people from both parties who saw the illegalities or the, or the alleged Ill- illegalities, and you don't, you don't have that this time. So people can make decisions on that, and, and I just think the process should go forward. We have, we have a process for, you know, for these kind of things. Let it go to the Senate. Let, it, let a decision be made. Um, I, you know, Christianity Today can say what they want. Um, it, to me, it comes down to um, who's the person God is using for such a time as this to accomplish his purposes, and he can use righteous people, he can use unrighteous people. God advances his causes in different ways. So um, that's my two cents on the whole thing. All right, so back to something, how about like prayer? Or, uh, you know. (laughs) Um, We had a question asking uh, um, from parents about their prodigal child. So the idea of... Um, their adult child is not following um, the Lord, and they want to know how to help them. Um, there is um, a parable of the prodigal that I think can be really helpful in Scripture. And most remember the story of the son who wanted his father's inheritance, basically saying, Dad, I, I, I wish that you weren't here anymore so that I could just have your inheritance and, and spend it any way I wanted to. The dad said, well, here you go. He released his son into the world. Son went into the world, um, came to his senses, came back, and uh, the father greeted him with open arms, um, welcomed him back into the family. And so it's a, it's a great story, and I think there's a lot for us to learn about that, that situation. Never once, when anyone reads that story, does anyone assume that the parents or the father in this story was responsible for his son's attitude or behavior. Okay, so obviously as parents... Um, a lot of times when our children, when they grow up, they, they're, they're not following the Lord, we take personal responsibility. Um, there, obviously, there may be a lot of things that parents have done wrong, and we have a lot of regrets about things and mistakes that we have made, and we, would, we should um, ask forgiveness for those, repent of those mistakes. But it, this story is a great reminder of the son has a free will, walks away from the Lord, um, thankfully, comes to his senses and the father um, welcomes him home. The father didn't chase after him. The father didn't make it easy for the son. The son had to, to um, hit rock bottom. Um, but just for, for parents, if, if you have a child who's not walking with the Lord, pray for them. Um, release them. Um, remind yourself that God loves them more than you do, which is sometimes hard to remember. Almost, you you might need to remind yourself of that on a regular basis. God loves my son or daughter more than even I do, and so I'm going to continually just release my son or daughter to the Lord, praying for them, um, and preparing my heart for them, maybe to forgive them or to welcome them back someday. Um, Because as a parent, your job is to train them up, and in other words, make it as difficult as possible for them to stray. That's, that's the job as parents. Train them up in the way they should go. It's basically put them on the right track and get them going so fast that they can't turn and they can't look back. But realizing they do have a free will, they can turn to the right or to the left. And when they do, uh, release them to the Lord, pray for them, and pray for that day when you can welcome them back uh, like the, the prodigal son when he came back um, to the father who continued to love um, his children and welcome them back with open arms. So we have a lot of questions uh, about 
homosexuality, about same-sex marriage. Um, I'll, I'm going to read several of the questions that are similar and then try to answer all of this in one, in one answer. Um, question, I'm a Christian who believes homosexuality is wrong. My sibling is a homosexual and has invited me to their wedding. Should I go to support my homosexual sibling or should I not go to maintain my belief that homosexuality is wrong? Um, here's another question. In this day and age, homosexuality is so accepted and prevalent in our culture. How does the Bible guide us in teaching our children the balance between what is the truth and still showing God's grace and love? It's especially hard to explain that balance to young children. Um, here's a question. Would you attend a same-sex marriage? Um, what is the best way to, com- to combat LGBTQ acceptance, which has become popular amongst young people? There's a lot of questions along these lines. Okay, so let me start with the the wedding question. First of all, um, for those of you who might be new, um, you know, what is Cornerstone's position on homosexuality? You know, despite the fact that now across our country, uh, same-sex marriage has been legalized, um, the, the higher authority for every believer should always be the Bible. Sometimes the authority of government or, or the legislature, or in this case, the Supreme Court, the, ju- the judiciary, um, does not line up with the Bible. And, um, and so we always have to defer to Scripture. And in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, a homosexual behavior is condemned. It is something that, that God calls in Romans chapter 1 unnatural and indecent and perverted um, in, in uh, Leviticus 18, detestable and an abomination. So you have both Old Testament and New, and New Testament. Now, for those of you who right now are bristling because you feel offended by it, please don't be uh, offended. I'm just telling you that there are, there's a certain standard that God outlines about every moral behavior. And um, it, so it is our objective as Christians, first, to honor God's moral code, and secondly, to be loving towards those who don't necessarily agree, right? And therein, therein is the challenge. So we have to have a baseline first. The baseline that I'm speaking from is that homosexuality is seen and regarded by God as a sin. And it is not my objective to, to disagree with God. It's just simply my objective to always defer to the higher authority of God's word. And so uh, some parts of the Bible are easier to accept than others. For some of you, the whole topic of homosexuality and God calling it a sin is, is really hard for you because... Um, you know, sexuality is obviously something that is rooted in, in our very beings. God created us as sexual beings. But what he says to us is that there is a, there is a way, a place, a, there is a, um, a, a boundary regarding the sanctity of sex in, in which it should be enjoyed. And outside of that boundary, it should not be enjoyed. And so the place where it should be enjoyed is between a heterosexual couple, a husband and a wife, in marriage. That's what God says. Now, people can disagree all day long. Well, I think that's antiquated. I disagree with it. Okay, you can disagree with it all day long. I, I, I just am telling you that this is the way that God outlines it. And God knows best. And if you think you know best, uh, test that for a while and see how it goes for you. Because it'll be miserable for you in the long run. The Bible says the way of the transgressor is hard. Whenever you think you know more than God and you go ahead and try to decide to live your life the way you want to live it, God will let you for a while, but it's going to be miserable in the long run. In the long run. In the short term, not always, but in the long run, it always is when we defy what God's best is for us. And God wants his best for us. Now, that said, um, marriage is a very sacred thing. 
So, you know, if you attend a wedding, uh, don't see it as I'm just part of the audience. When you attend a wedding, you are there as a witness sanctioning this union. Okay, weddings have become more of a cultural thing. That's not, that's not the way weddings should be viewed. Weddings should be viewed as you bearing witness to, sanctioning, you're condoning, you're supporting this union. So I personally could never, first of all, I would never perform a same-sex marriage and, as a pastor, but I could never attend a same-sex wedding. Now, I had a couple in my church, uh, like a year or two ago, struggle with this same thing. And, and I thought they had a good solution to it. They, they got an invitation to a same-sex wedding. For their own Christian um, value reasons and biblical reasons, they were not comfortable in going, which I think was the right decision. But here's what they did. They, but they were quick to say to them, we're not going to go to your wedding as Christians. We don't feel comfortable. But we want to take you and your partner out for dinner uh, you know, in another few weeks. And we just want to sit and talk with you and, and share with you, um, you know, and, and, and they were receptive and they did. So there are ways to build bridges. There's ways to communicate truth wrapped with grace, you see, but it doesn't have to be that you just go along with things because it's culturally expected of you. There are other ways that you can still show love, build bridges, um, and, and try to share truth that is preceded by grace to, you know, grace and truth in the scriptures always in that order in the New Testament. Sometimes as Christians, I said this in the last service, sometimes as Christians, we want to always put truth forward, truth forward, truth forward. And sometimes in the presentation of truth, we've alienated a lot of people because we've been abrasive with our truth. We've wanted to be right at all costs. And so we've, we've never really shared the truth in a loving way. The Bible always talks about grace and truth in that order. So we have to be gracious with people in order for them to really ever be receptive to the truth. But you don't compromise your own values, even though the values of our culture have continued to uh, conflict with the values of the Bible. You, you stand for, for what is right, but you do it in a loving way. And so, you know, I, I don't think you should go to a same-sex wedding. And, you know, in terms of like, you know, how do you present it to children? And it's, it's very complicated. I'm telling you, you're living now in a, in a world that is very complicated. You as parents are having to deal with things in raising your children that Terry and I never had to deal with. We had a you know, different set of stuff. And so, you know, how do you communicate these kinds of things? Um, I think you just need to always honor God. You have to always, like, accept Scripture as truth. Do your best to live out that truth. And as you teach your children what is true, just always remind them that there will be people who don't agree with us. There will be people who see things very differently. You're still supposed to love them. You're still supposed to be kind to them, to be decent to them. Um, but we don't compromise truth uh, for the sake of just being nice. And, and that, unfortunately, is what has happened often. Truth has been sacrificed on the altar of love. Uh, people are just like, I just want to be loving, and so therefore I'm going to abandon truth in order to just be super loving. And that might be noble, but that doesn't do anybody any benefit. One of the highest forms of respect you can show someone is truth. Now, there's a way, again, that truth can be presented in a, in a decent way or an obnoxious way. And so we have to be careful that we're decent and loving and presenting the truth. But the highest form of respect you can show someone is truth. And when you are not truthful with them, it's actually disrespect. Dishonesty is a sign of disrespect. You don't respect someone or love someone enough to be truthful with them. 
But the task at hand for Christians is how do we present this in a loving way? Because now that government has gotten involved and said, this is okay, we sanction this, this is fine. And then Christians are like, "Uh, no, it's not really fine. Um, At least, you know, Christians should be that way. There's a lot of churches now that are, you know, putting out the rainbow flag and embracing the whole thing and doing a disservice to to the homosexual community, in my opinion, uh, in just embracing it without sharing the truth. But, but now we're living in a day when just by virtue of saying, this is what I believe, this is what I believe the Bible to be true, you're going to be labeled a hater, you're going to be labeled a bigot, and even if you do your best to be as loving as possible, people will still hate you. Why? Because they hated Jesus before you. And, and truth by itself is exclusive, and truth by itself is confrontational, and it challenges people, and people don't like the challenge, and so people will inevitably see you as bigoted and hateful, even though you're, you're not supposed to be that way, and hopefully you're not coming across that way. So teach your kids the Bible, live according to Scripture, do the right thing, be loving in doing the right thing, and don't compromise truth for the sake of just being liked or for the sake of being culturally relevant. All right, Andy, what do you have? Got a question. about something on prayer? (laughs) How do I explain to someone why they are experiencing suffering? So a lot of times when there is suffering in our lives, the first question that comes up is why? Um, Job, one of the first uh, stories that we have um, in Scripture, one of the oldest stories, um, Job asked God why five different times in the book of Job. Why is all this happening to me? So when there is suffering, a lot of times that question is why. So this person is asking, how do I explain it? And the answer is probably just stop trying. A lot of times we just have to stop trying to explain away um, suffering and just accept it. Realize that fairness ended in the Garden of Eden. And this sense of it, things will not always be fair and we can't always explain the suffering. Um, but, but to accept it and look throughout Scripture, realize that Joseph suffered, um, Job suffered, um, uh, Paul suffered, um, Moses suffered. We realize, okay, it didn't matter. It wasn't the fact that Job was a righteous man. Other righteous men suffered, were put in prison. John the Baptist was put in prison and beheaded. He was a Christian. He didn't do anything wrong. He didn't cause his suffering. Um, so we can't really enough, always explain it, but we have to accept it as part of the Christian life. And a lot of the New Testament is written to Christians encouragement um, for how to deal with suffering in this lifetime. Jesus said, in this lifetime, you will experience trial and suffering. And so you read First Peter, read James. There's a lot of scripture that talks about how to continue to be patient and how to persevere uh, through difficult times. And probably it's going to start when we stop trying to explain the suffering away. Real quick question too. Somebody else asked, um, how do I honor my parents um, as an adult when they're not very honorable. Um, so, great question. The, the idea is um, love is easy when someone's lovable. Honor is easy when someone's honorable. Respect is easy when someone is respectable. Um, Jesus said even the pagans do that. Do that. that was the, the phrase that he used. Even the pagans can love someone who loves them back. So this is a great question. I love the heart here. I want to honor my parents, but they're not very honorable. Um, a lot of times when there is the absence of good, um, just make sure there's the absence of the negative as well. So in, in other words, I may find it difficult to, to, to love, to honor, to show respect. There may not be a lot of opportunities for me to, to do the positive, but just make sure I'm not doing the negative as well. 
That would mean make sure I'm, I've forgiven them. Make sure I'm not saying bad things about them. Make sure I'm not criticizing them. Make sure I'm not being hurtful to them. Uh, make sure I'm not doing a lot of things negative to them. They're, maybe they're not giving me a lot of opportunities to commend them, but that doesn't mean that I can be hurtful to them as well. There's ways to support your parents. Um, there's ways to be respectful to them. You don't necessarily have to listen to them as, as an adult, necessarily not to obey them. As, a, as an adult with, with older parents, but you can still be respectful towards them even if they're not respectable. If you find that difficult, um, Scripture gives a lot of opportunities where he says, hey, we, we rely on the love uh, that God has for us to, to love one another, to respect one another, even when it's difficult. And so that would be a, a, a matter for prayer to say, I want to make sure I'm not doing anything negative to, to, to worsen the relationship. And then when there are opportunities, let me show love, acceptance, forgiveness, uh, to my parents as well, and honor them even if they're not uh, even if they're not honorable. So uh, there's questions on alcohol position on drinking alcohol. Can you discuss the biblical position of drinking alcohol? I know in Proverbs 31 it mentions, "Give strong drink to him who is perishing, and wine to him whose life is bitter. Let him drink and forget his poverty, and remember his trouble no more." <laughs> <clears throat> Yeah, but then you wake up, and it's still there. Um, and they, they quote, they, but they say, but Proverbs also says, wine is a mocker and beer is a brawler, which is true. There are actually 11 references to alcohol in the book of Proverbs alone. Nine out of 11 are warnings against it. The one that they quoted is actually one in favor of it, but it says, give strong drink to him who is perishing. So if you're dying, drink up, you know. <laughs> You're halfway there. You might as well take it out the rest of the way. Um, so the sin really is drunkenness. Uh, so Ephesians chapter five eighteen it says, "Do not get drunk on wine, wherein is excess, uh, which leads to debauchery, uh, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit." So if you want to be filled with something, really look for the Spirit's capital S, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Um, but there's warnings against drunkenness. That's really the sin. Then the question becomes, you know, this is always like, this is always the big debate. Well, at what point am I really drunk? When have I crossed over from just a little buzz to being passed out drunk? Where is the sin in there? You know, and then the legal limit for, you know, blood alcohol content is different from country to country. So what might be illegal in uh, United States in, cer- in terms of blood alcohol level is fine in France. I mean, they're smashed half of the day, you know, so the, but, but so you get this big debate. Well, you know, when is it legally or technically drunkenness? And, and whenever people are, are asking those kind of technical questions to me, you're already too close to the line. So here's the thing. There are on average a hundred thousand alcohol related deaths per year in the United States. And I don't know if you know this, but there are more, twice as many alcohol-related deaths in the United States every year, twice as many alcohol-related deaths than those who die from AIDS. It's a problem. Um, I've said this many times, and I'll always use this statement whenever we talk about this subject. I've had many people come to my office over the course of of my years in pastoral ministry and tell me how alcohol has affected either the breakup of a marriage, the demise of a business, the loss of a job, the death of someone. 
I've never had anybody make an appointment, come into my office and tell me all the wonderful things that have improved in their lives because of alcohol. Okay? There's very serious ramifications because of alcohol. So what I would say to you biblically, just trying to be biblically balanced, is that the Bible does not prohibit the drinking of alcohol. The Bible condemns drunkenness. Now, you, you have to have enough wisdom to know how close you're getting to that line. And we have to be careful. First, the first reference to alcohol in the Bible is in Genesis uh, chapter 9, when Noah gets drunk and gets naked and then bad things happened. All right? Which, you know... A lot of times where alcohol is involved, people get naked. So it's just like, that's one of the things you see in Genesis 9. And then the last time, which isn't, you know, it could be an awful thing to see. But then the last time alcohol is mentioned in the Bible is Revelation 17 and 18, when it talks about the, the woman who rides the beast and the nations have drunk the, uh, the maddening wine of her adulteries. First time it's mentioned, the last time it's mentioned in the Bible, it's in bad light. And so there's a lot of warnings about it. Again, it, there's not a prohibition against it in the Bible. But there are some really serious warnings about it. And, um, and, and to that end, I think that you ought to take the subject um, very seriously. People have a, you know, there, are, there can be addictive tendencies with this. And, and I'm telling you, lives have been ruined. There's some people in our congregation who who would give testimony to say, you know, my life, praise God, God has redeemed my life and, and restored my life, but I lost a lot of things because of an addiction to alcohol. And so um, it's something very serious um, that, that you would be wise to give careful thought to in your life. There's a question on um, healthy dating relationships. The question in, in talks about there's just not a lot in Scripture about dating. And so... Um, when you think about dating, um, the idea would be when I look in Scripture, I see a lot of verses or Scripture that talk about how to treat one another. And so I would just apply all of those verses to dating, just the idea of love one another, honor one another, accept one another, uh, forgive one another. The idea is in, um, in dating, it's a time of evaluation, but it's also a time of growth to where you're trying to become less selfish and more mature. So you're focused more on others than you are yourself. And that would be what you're looking for in, in a spouse as well, someone who is unselfish. Uh, the Bible wants us to communicate with other people in mind. The Bible wants us to, to be kind with other people in mind. So this, the sense of uh, maturity and uh, unselfishness are good traits, and that's, that's the time of dating should be focused on I'm, I'm learning to, to love one another more than myself. I'm learning to accept. I'm learning to forgive. Um, I'm learning to care for other people and, and not just myself. Um, and the other question we got on, on dating just simply says, is premarital sex a sin? Um, the, the answer would be yes. And the reason is, along with dating, is the idea that God wants us to have an intimate relationship in marriage. And he knows the way to do that is through purity. We want the intimacy, but we want to skip the purity part. And so dating, and, and even in marriage, is a time for us to, to be pure, to be, to, 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 um, in dating, to, to be pure sexually, and then in marriage, to be focused just on, on your spouse. Um, and so to have that intimate relationship, God knew that that was the path. 
And so people think about, well, why is premarital sex such a big deal? Or if I love the person, or why, why is it such a focus? Well, the reality is it's because God wants us to be pure, and he knows that through purity we can have those intimate relationships that, that we were created for, that, that we desire. And those intimate relationships are best when we're unselfish, when we're mature, when we can focus on the other person, and when we can be pure of, of our hearts and our minds and our bodies. And uh, so that's, uh, that's important. And I, I would say, rather than look for specific scripture on, on dating, look for scripture on how we're to treat uh, one another, your brothers and sisters in Christ, and you'll get a lot of answers uh, that way. And I'll, I'll just follow up on that with a scripture verse uh, for those of you, you know, the question about teens and, and sex. First uh, Thessalonians 4, verse 3 says, It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. And, and so, you know, Scripture is pretty plain. Like, there are certain things that God specifically says, this is my will for you, this is my will for you. And one of the things he says is he wants sex to be enjoyed as a gift that he gave us within the context of marriage between a man and a woman. Outside of that, it is not to be expressed. And so that... that that goes along the lines of what, what Andy was saying. And then um, I'll just close out with a, um, a couple of questions here because our time has already escaped us. Somebody says, as a Catholic for 52 of my 53 years, when you were one, you finally got converted there to Catholicism. But as a Catholic for 52 of my 53 years, it has been standard to make the sign of the cross before and after praying also standard has been my been starting my prayers by saying the our father hail mary and glory be is it acceptable for me to continue this when i pray and at cornerstone chapel and elsewhere is it okay to pray just without doing these things so um i've met a lot over the years i've met a lot of you who have catholic backgrounds and i and i'm just estimating just from my interactions with people probably a third of our congregation is made up of people with catholic backgrounds um one of the wonderful things about um when people start to come to Cornerstone and they have a Catholic background is they begin to realize that some of the things they were doing, they were doing out of tradition and not really because the Bible teaches it. And so there are a lot of traditional things in Catholicism that don't have really a biblical basis. And for that reason, I would say to you, you're free and you don't have to sign yourself and you don't have to pray, you know, prescriptive prayers, um, you, you now can come into a relationship with Jesus in a way that some of those traditional things just have no biblical basis. So you don't need to practice those things. You don't, you don't need to do those things. You don't, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a whole new sense of freedom. Um, because one of the things that is common to my Catholic friends is they're always feeling guilty about something. And, you know, I've had people who accidentally call me father, you know, they come and that's a clue. They're Catholic. And they come up to me and, and they're like, father, uh, I, I just, I feel even guilty for being here. Father, can you pray for me for even being here? I'm not at the Catholic church. I said, first of all, don't call me father. Only my kids call me father. And, uh, and, and then second of all, no, no, no guilt, no shame, you know, just walk in newness of life and fellowship with Jesus. And so, no, you don't have to worry about uh, doing those things here. And then I guess the last question I'll just answer real quickly is what do you think is the biggest issue facing the church as we enter 2020? And I, 
I, I saw this question and I, and I thought, you know, there's probably a few things that I could say. But I think this has been basically not just a theme in my heart for 2020, but for the last, I'd say, I don't know, five or ten years. And it's, and it's what I'll call cultural creep. It is the tendency of the culture to just slowly creep into our hearts and lives and families and church. And before we know it, we've been transformed by the culture rather than us having a transforming effect upon the culture. And I think that's the biggest threat. We have to be salt and light to the world. The world needs something that we have. And if we just basically allow the the culture to shape us and transform us rather than the other way around, we're not fulfilling our biblical mandate. And cultural creep has concerned me because I see um, tendencies within families um, and within just, you know, individual uh, belief sets of, of this acceptance of things and this, um, this tolerance of, of, of stuff that um, has only been accepted and tolerated because enough people have said you should. And it's like, you know, where, where have people gone in regards to their convictions and standards and values? And um, it's challenging in our world today. We're living in a v- very challenging times. But at the same time, um, I'm seeing, and I have seen over the past few years, people coming to church here. And, I, and I'm sure this happens in other churches, but I'm just saying from my personal experience here, where there is a hunger you know, people have said to me, how come your church is growing despite the fact that you can be strong on these issues and, you know, you don't hold back when it comes to some of the... And, and here's my answer. Because at the same time that our culture is going in a wayward direction, there are a lot of people who are realizing the answer is not in what the world offers. And so people have been coming here with a hunger and a thirst for, just tell me the truth. I may disagree with you, but tell me the truth because I know I'm not getting it out there. So somebody, please tell me the truth. And I've seen people actually have a hunger and appetite for, you know, tell me what the Bible says. Give me some truth. Tell me who God is. Tell me what this means. Because um, it's, it's a hunger now that is infectious among people who realize the answers are not in the world. The answer is not in our culture. So as weird as the culture gets, I've also seen the backlash of that, where people are now seeking and hungry for something. And, you know, it's evident by, by you know, just look at hundreds of people who came to faith over Christmas Eve. People are looking for an answer, a real genuine answer that this world does not offer. That's why we continue to present Jesus. He is our only hope. Jesus is our hope in this world. Amen. How do I know God's calling and will for my life? Um, when I think about people asking about God's will, um, my first thought goes to Emerson Egriches, who was here um, maybe two years ago, and he taught on a sermon um, from a book that he recently wrote, uh, The Four Wills of God. Mm-hmm. Does that sound right? Yeah. Emerson Egriches, uh, Wills of God, if you can want to read that book. But basically, his take was very simplified. There are, script, there are scriptures that talk about God's will for your life. So the questions 
we, we usually think about, is it God's will for me to take this job? Is it God's will for me to move to Seattle? Is it God's will uh, for me to marry this person? Um, those are all important questions, but um, what we start with is, what, what do we know? We know that it's God's will for us to follow him. We know that it's God's will for us to give thanks in all circumstances, as it says in First Thessalonians. We know it's God's will for us to remain pure. Um, and so there are things that, that we know that are God's will. So when we start with those things, the other things, it's not that they don't matter as much, but they're easier for us because it's like, I'm following God's will. I'm, I'm submitting to authority. I'm following him. I'm, I'm giving thanks. I'm remaining pure. Um, so I can do that whether in Portland or Seattle. I can do that whether I go to James Madison or whether I go to George Mason. So some of those, some of those what's God's will for me to get easily answered, to get simplified, when we stick with what we do know, um, then God leads us and can bless us in, uh, in ways um, regardless of what job we take, regardless of whether we live in Ashburn or Leesburg. God can bless us. We can be in the center of his will um, because we're doing what we know and what uh, we know from his word is true. So someone asked about the Sabbath day. How should we spend the Sabbath? Is it a day or rest or service? Scripture says it's a day to rest, but Jesus served on the Sabbath. So um, the Sabbath day and keeping it holy is the fourth commandment among the Ten Commandments. It says, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. And so um, God calls us to honor the Sabbath. But what we need to always do is look at Scripture at how Scripture expounds upon Scripture. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And when you get to the New Testament in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, it says, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. In other words, Christ came, he said, not to abolish the law, but that the law might be fulfilled through me. So now the ultimate fulfillment of all the, the sum total of the law is fulfilled in Christ. In other words, our ultimate rest is found in Jesus. So the Sabbath day is, in terms of uh, an important day of rest, a matter of principle, but not a legalistic thing. You know, technically, Sabbath is still Saturday. You know, that part hasn't changed. Um, Saturday has, has been the Sabbath from the beginning of time and still remains so. That's why the Jews recognize the Sabbath, sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. The reason why we gather on Sundays is because the resurrection of Christ occurred on a Sunday. And the early church, through the book of Acts, you can begin to see that they gathered together again on the Lord's Day, the day that he rose from the dead, to continually commemorate the resurrected Lord. And so we worship on Sundays, but we should still have, here's the main point that God's trying to make with the whole idea of the Sabbath day. We should still have a one out of seven that we have as a time when we're off, a time when we rest. So it doesn't necessarily technically have to be Saturday. It can be a particular day of the week that you one out of seven carve out so that you can at least have some time 
off a time to rest. Look, it doesn't just honor God because he labored for six days in the creation of the earth and then rested on the seventh. In that sense, we're honoring God. But in the sense of God knows the way that he wired us. And that if we keep, you know, I've said this before to quote the prophet Billy Joel. Um, if you, if you keep working, 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 you're going to have a heart attack, ack, 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 ack. you know, you, you should have known by now. So that's, what's going to happen. God knows if you don't take time to rest, you're going to end up burning out. You know, there's a reason why on hair dryers and, you know, small kitchen appliances, if you don't turn the thing off, there's an overheat mechanism that will turn it off for you. And that's what happens with you and me. It's called either a heart attack or a stroke or something. And, and then we're turned off. So, so the deal is God put within the, our schedule a day of rest for our benefit. That we might have some time to just relax and a time to just be down. And so it's important that you carve out some time, one out of seven, and honor the Lord with some type of Sabbath rest and it does good for ourselves physically, emotionally, and spiritually as well. But, it, you know, don't get hung up on it's got to be a particular day. Colossians 2.16 tells us it's ultimately all fulfilled in Christ. A couple different questions about waiting on the Lord. Um, a, somebody called it a season of waiting. How long do I have to wait on the Lord? Um, I'm waiting. I don't feel like he's hearing me or speaking to me. Um, the comfort that we can get if we're in a season of waiting in our lives where it doesn't feel like God is speaking to us or there's no answer from him or we're trying to be patient. Um, there's many examples of scripture of, of waiting. I mean, David wrote in the Psalms many different times about, about it. I mean, think about David's life. He, he was anointed to be king, but then he had to wait over 10 years for that to, to take place. So he's familiar with waiting. And so when you read in Psalm 13... He says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. And then in uh, Psalm 27, he says, wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Uh, David had to understand the principle, God's plan um, it's not always immediate. It's not always obvious. It's not always convenient. So there are times when we will have to wait for God's plan to take place. Sometimes when we read scripture, we can turn the page and see that the, the, the prayer has been answered. Uh, Isaac and Rebecca prayed to have a baby. We turned the page and they had a baby. But be- between the time when they prayed and when they had the baby, it took 20 years. But we don't think about those things when we just simply turn the page. We just look, oh, God answered the prayer. What, what a wonderful thing. I wish God would answer my prayer in a day or in a week. But sometimes it does take years. Sometimes there are seasons of waiting. And so it, it's a time for us to be still. It's a time for us um, to learn to be content. Um, Paul was in prison and he wrote, I've learned the secret to be content in every situation. And, and he wrote that verse in, in uh, Philippians. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, he wasn't, sometimes we'll use that verse like Nike or just do it. Like I can leap a building or I can throw a touchdown pass or I can do these great things. Paul's basically saying, I can be in prison and yet I can be content in Christ. I can have peace in my heart, even though all my plans aren't the way I want things to happen. Is it hasn't taken place yet. I can wait on the Lord and still be content. And he called it a secret because it's difficult. It's, it's not easily found. 
And so he had to learn to rest in the Lord. And so I would just encourage anyone in here who feels like, I'm in a season of waiting. God's not speaking to me. I'm trying to be patient. Nothing's happening. Um, Just continue. A lot of times when things get foggy, a lot of times our tendency, our human nature, is to speed up. When reality, we need to slow down. Just slow down, wait on the Lord, be content in the situation that you're in, find rest in that, find peace in that, and, uh, and wait for him to come through. Someone asks, um, advice on keeping faith throughout college when you're surrounded by those who don't believe or look down on those who do. So um, a few years ago, um, for our high school group, I, I gave a devotional at summer camp, and I said something to them that I will say in answer to this question because it applies to high school, college, or really at any point in life where you feel that you're pretty much alone and you, and you don't have uh, a very strong network or a support group of people who share your faith. Um, you know, but before I share that principle, when you go off to college, I mean, you know, most colleges have some kind of, of Christian, you know, parachurch ministry, FCA, um, Campus Crusade for Christ, crew, something that you could probably find on college campus so that you can, you know, make sure you maintain a network of some, you know, Christian friends that you can, you know, encourage one another. Um, you get out in the real world in, in your college years and your faith is going to be tested in, in a big way that it probably hasn't been tested up to this point because you obviously have some more liberties than you've had when you were living at home. And so when you're away at school, now you have to really man up if you're a guy or a woman up if you're a, a lady and, and decide I'm going to live out my faith even, even though now you know I'm not under the, the watching eye of mom or dad. Um, I'm, I'm under the watching eye of the Lord and I want to please him. And so the thing that I said to the high, our high school group that I'll say you know, to college students is, if you're a Christian and you really want to live for the Lord, but you feel this sense of like, wow, I don't have a ton of support, you know, and I don't, here's the phrase, you're going to have to learn to embrace the loneliness. One of the biggest factors as to why people decide to, you know, bail on their faith and to go the way of the world is because they just don't want to be alone. And they don't want to be odd man out, and so they don't want to feel weird, and so they start to run with the crowd. And there are going to be times in your life, and this goes for all of us, at some stage or place in life, you will have to learn to embrace loneliness. That there are lonely seasons in life in general. And as a Christian, you will find there are times when you just feel like you're all alone. Isaiah 7 verse 9 says, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. We have to learn to stand for what we believe is right. And if that means sometimes we're the only person, or at least we feel like we're the only person because we're not the only person, but we feel like it because maybe we haven't developed the kind of friendships that we would like for that support network. You, you have to be willing to say, okay, you know, I, in this season of my life, when I'm, when I'm really feeling alone, I'm going to press into the Lord. I'm going to seek the Lord. I'm going to stay in the word. I'm going to draw near to him. But you have to be willing to stand alone and embrace the loneliness. There, read in 1 Samuel chapter 30. Go home and read 1 Samuel chapter 30. Um, David had his fighting men off fighting as, as men do when they go to war. And they left their wives and their kids back in the town where they were, which is called Ziklag. 
while they were out at war fighting, the Amalekites came to Ziklag and burned it to the ground and kidnapped the wives and the children. And when, the, when David and his army came back and found their city, their town was destroyed by the Amalekites and their wives and their children were missing, it tells us in 1 Samuel chapter 30, they, they talked about stoning David to death. They were so mad at him. You're our leader. You took us to war. We came back. Now our wives and our kids are gone. And it says in, in 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, that David was greatly distressed, obviously, right? You're, you're, you know, all your, your fighting buddies are now wanting to kill you. And it says this in 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, but David encouraged himself in the Lord. Like there was no one else who was going to come alongside of David and say, it's going to be okay. And I'm with you. And we can do this. And there will be times in your life as a Christian that that in in a particular season, somebody may not be there to come alongside you and say, it's going to be okay. We can do this. You can stay, you know, strong in your faith that you have to encourage yourself in the Lord and that you will not necessarily have a network of people that you can fall back on. So know that the Lord will never leave you nor forsake you. Embrace the loneliness, stand for what is right. And sometimes you just have to encourage yourself in the Lord because nobody else is going to do that for you. So that would be my encouragement to you at whatever season you're in, but particularly in this context for those in college, just, you know, stay strong in your faith, but you better be willing at times that that means there's going to be some loneliness because um, otherwise you're just going to get sucked right into the culture of of um of the college scene or whatever scene is around you we had a few questions about forgiveness and specifically forgiveness um um, of family members and so just want to always point out um forgiveness is a principle that god gave us and and that he is basically saying if you follow jesus then you will learn to forgive it's, it's a command. Um, forgiveness is not an option. Um, it's not something that you, um, well, uh, maybe I'll forgive 10 years from now. Maybe, I'll, maybe someday, I'll, someday I'll forgive. Forgiveness is basically something Jesus is telling us. Um, we read about it in Matthew. If you don't forgive those who have sinned against you, my heavenly Father won't forgive you. It's, it's this principle. It's like if, if you're not forgiving as a follower of Jesus, you probably don't understand God's forgiveness for you. So that's the principle. God forgives us and wants us to forgive others. And, okay? and if we don't forgive others, we probably don't understand God's forgiveness for us. Now, the difference is that God doesn't c- command reconciliation. So we have to understand the difference. We get questions about this a lot. It's like, yes, you, you're, you're to forgive. But he can't command reconciliation because he, he can't command you to do anything that takes two people. Okay, so you may want to forgive your dad, but you can't reconcile with your dad, and God's not commanding it. He he may want you to be open to reconciliation, but reconciliation takes two people. It takes a rebuilding of trust. It takes healing. It takes time. So we have to learn to separate forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness is an act. It's, It's something that God commands because it shows that we understand how much God has forgiven us. Yes, I forgive you. Do I trust you? No. Are we reconciled? No. Are we going to have dinner together? No. But I forgive you. Okay? So it's a sense of, I'm going to give up my right to get you back for what you did to me. But reconciliation take, may, may take weeks, 
may take months, may take years. It takes two people. It takes the rebuilding of trust. You just can't talk your way out of something that you acted your way into. So just by someone saying, I'm sorry, I won't do that again. If trust is broken, and the bigger the trust is broken, maybe the longer it will take. God understands that reconciliation takes time. Some people feel guilty because I, I still don't trust, or I have trouble healing, or I have trouble reconciling. God understands that. And we, we have several questions here about marriage and, and remarriage and divorce. God understands when there's a spouse that commits adultery, reconciliation may not be possible. Be open to it. It doesn't command that you divorce. But the reality is God understands the, how difficult it is to get over a broken trust. And so, yes, forgive. So those are the questions anybody asking. Do I need to forgive? The answer is yes. Do I need to reconcile? The answer would be maybe. Hopefully. That would be the goal. God would want us to reconcile. But he, he, he's not going to force that upon you. He can only ask you to do what you can control. And, that, and you can forgive. You can't reconcile uh, by yourself. So someone asked, is the God of the Bible the same God of the Quran? And how do I talk to Muslim acquaintances as to this topic? Um, so, you know, I'll just answer it directly and then I'll come back and, um, and, and give you some advice on the latter part of the question. The God of the Bible is not the same as the God of the Quran. Um, a lot of people are under the misunderstanding that they are the same, they are not. Uh, Islam started in the 7th century AD. And Islam started because Muhammad was basically a, a rebel against what was the popular polytheistic religion of the time among Arab tribes. So there were more than 300 gods that Arab tribes were worshipping. Muhammad being somewhat of, when I use the word rebel, in the sense that he went counter to his own day when he said, no, no, there are not 300 plus gods, there's only one. And he turned the Arab tribal religious system from polytheistic to a strict monotheistic religion. But what he did was he chose one of those 300 plus gods as the supreme God, which in Arabic is just Allah. Allah just means the supreme God. So even, even Christian Arabs will pray to God in their Arab tongue as Allah because they're just praying to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob using an Arab word for supreme God. But on the lips of an Arab Christian, Allah means something different than on the lips of a Muslim who says Allah. Because Allah to Muslims is historically, at least, based on the fact that Muhammad chose one of those 300 plus gods and said, no, this one is the supreme God. This one is Allah. And the God that he chose was the moon God. The moon God. Have you ever wondered why one of the symbols of Islam is the crescent moon? It's because Muhammad chose the moon God to be the supreme God, not the same as the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of the Bible kind of created the moon. Okay? So they are two different gods. As to how do you begin to, you know, bridge that gap and share with Muslims about, you know, who God is in the Bible, I would start with Jesus. Because here's the thing, even though, and this is, this is what I'm about to say is highly offensive to Muslims, 
Even though I believe that the Quran is corrupt, and they would say the Bible is corrupt, they would say the Quran is the only true truth, okay? Um, you can still persuade about Jesus from the Quran. And here's what I mean. In the Quran, it says that Jesus is alive and Muhammad is dead. So you can ask a Muslim, why do you worship the one who is dead? Surah 355 says, Behold, Allah said, O Jesus, I will take thee and raise thee to myself to rise from the dead and clear thee of the falsehoods of those who blasphemed thee. In the Quran, it says Jesus was born of a virgin, Surah 347. Jesus is sinless, Surah 685. Jesus is the Messiah, Surah 345. Jesus performed miracles, Surah 349. Jesus ascended into heaven in bodily form, Surah 355. So since Muhammad did none of those things, you can ask them, why then, how can Muhammad be called the greatest of the prophets when he did none of those things that Jesus did? And you can start to at least help them to begin to see, oh, maybe, maybe there's more to Jesus than I know, because even the Quran speaks about some truthful things about Jesus, even though the God of Quran is different from the God of the Bible. And I would just say, you know, pray for your Muslim friends and, um, you know, live your life. You know, look, there are more non-Arab Muslims than there are Arab Muslims. So to say, you know, Arab people, it's, it's, that's a misnomer. There are more non-Arab Muslims. So w- whatever culture you're in, if, if somebody is Muslim, they are generally speaking, you know, very open and cordial. And, uh, you know, Daniel Messiah, if you've been here, when, when I've had Daniel here, Daniel was born Muhammad Kamal. He was born an, an Egyptian Muslim, and then he, he converted to Christianity. And so, you know, I've had him here a few times, and he has shared his faith. But he, he's the one that said to me, Gary, you know, invite yourself to a Muslim home. They will, they will never turn you down. They're very hospitable. They will bring you in. And th- then he jokes, he goes, what's the worst that can happen? They kill you. You go to heaven. <laughs> But it's all a joke. He's like, they, they will not kill you. They will be very hospitable. So if you want to really start to just engage the conversation, um, it, even though it's, it's, it's a very weird Western mindset to ever invite yourself over to somebody's house, um, Muslims generally will, will welcome that. And you can start to, you know, build the bridge and have some dialogue and, and share your faith. Um, but it, 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 you know, should be something that you obviously pray about and just ask the Lord to help you as you, as you want to present the truth in love, but they are not the same. They are not the same gods. You know, years ago when our church was very young and we didn't even have a church building, some of you who were here from the early days, remember that over at the holiday inn, which used to be called Caradoc Hall at the time, we used to have these, um, I would call them discovery dinners, like once a month on a Sunday night. And we'd have, you know, the church is only like 200 people. And so we would have people come over to the ballroom there and we'd have a dinner. And then I'd do a teaching we call it discovery, like some, you know, theological or doctrinal thing. So the banquet manager at the time was Muslim and we're sitting, I'm sitting opposite his table and I'm negotiating the price for the dinner. Like, you know, what should, what should you charge us? And he looks at me and he goes, you know something, your God is my God. He was, he was Muslim. And he looks at me and he goes, your God, my God, I give you a good deal. And inside I'm like, your God is not my God, but if it's worth a good deal, all right, I want to hear it right now. <laughs> Isn't that terrible? I'm just admitting to you that I didn't even speak up. I just was like, 
If it's worth a good deal and a meal, your God is my God. I didn't have to say it. I let him say it. Anyway. Go ahead, Andy. Clean that up for me. Go ahead. That's shameful. It's shameful, yeah. Hey, there's therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ. All right, go ahead. Uh, We don't have enough time. There are literally hundreds of questions. And there's questions about um, depression, questions about anger, questions about doubt. And so rather than try to answer each one of those, I'm just going to group them together and just make sure everybody understands. Um, Emotions um, like like sadness, uh, grief, um, anger, or, or doubt... Um, they don't prove our faith. They, they prove our humanness. Okay, so when, when you feel those emotions as a follower of Jesus, I don't want anyone to, to doubt their faith, to, to say, well, if I was a better Christian, I wouldn't feel sad. Or if I was a better Christian, I wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt um, the, of God's faithfulness. Or if I was a better Christian, I, I wouldn't have this anger that I'm, that I'm feeling. Um, the, those, it's almost like someone kicks you in the shin, you hurt it, 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 because you're human. Okay. So a Christian's still going to say, ow. So I, I, I'd always want people to understand we have emotions that we're going to feel regardless if we're Christians or, or not. So by following Jesus, you 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 will still feel, um, uh, doubt and anger and, and sadness. Um, what's important is that you don't use those emotions as an excuse or something that gets in the way of you following Jesus, okay? So you don't want your anger to be an excuse um, for your bad behavior. You don't want your doubt to get in the way of you sharing your faith, okay? You don't want your sadness to get in the way of you coming to church. Do you understand the difference? If if we're sad, um, we may not want to come to church that day, but we know... God, I know you want me to be with other believers. I know you want me to be um, in the house of, of God. I know you want me to serve and to fellowship. And so I'm going to go, despite my sadness. Well, that's success. That's obedience, that you're showing faith. God, I, I trust you to do this. Or I'm feeling angry, and I want to say something mean, but, but I'm going to hold my tongue. Well, there's an example. Like, we don't let our anger just decide that now I can say whatever I want. I can, I can because, I, because I, and then we use that as an excuse. So our emotions shouldn't be used to, to prove our faith, but they also shouldn't be used as an excuse or something that gets in the way of us serving God, obeying God, or following Him. So the idea that I have doubts, what does that mean about my faith? Well, that, that means that you're human. And we live in a fallen world, and it's tough sometimes to trust God. Um, um, but that doesn't, it doesn't mean that your faith is weak or that, or that um, uh, you sh- you're not a Christian, okay? Because you doubt, that just means that, that you're human. Um, but don't use that doubt to keep, get in the way of you serving and obeying God the way that, that he would want you to. John the Baptist had doubt, okay? Doubting Thomas was a disciple that shared his faith uh, throughout India. And, and, and many came to know the Lord because of Thomas. He didn't let his doubt get in the way of his service to the Lord, and we shouldn't either. So when you think about these emotions or when you have these human emotions, I don't want it to discourage us and make us think that, that it's something wrong with our faith, um, but also don't use it as an excuse or something that gets in the way of you doing what you know uh, God would want you to do. Did you answer the question about dating a non-Christian? It was a different question. Um, okay. 
But it is, it is interesting. Um, a lot of questions about dating, relationships, what a healthy relationships look like, what a healthy marriages look like. Do you want to... Yeah, I mean, I, you know, the go-to verse that people who, who want the freedom for Christians to date non-Christians don't like is 2 Corinthians 6.14, which says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, what fellowship is righteousness with lawlessness. Um, the answer to the question is, um, I, I don't believe that biblically um, Christians should be dating non-Christians. You can have them as friends, you can have them as work associates, you can have them as you know um, business associates, but when you... And, and, and let me clarify, even with business associates, you better make sure that if you own a business, you retain the majority of your business because if you do a 50-50 with an unbeliever, you're unequally yoked there as well. And I've, I've had to arbitrate in, in cases where a Christian got into a business transaction with a non-Christian and it became disastrous. And the same can happen in relationships. Um, it's, it's, not, it's not that there's this sense of like, you know, we're too good to date non-Christians. It's the sense that you're on two different pages. And if you really want to honor the Lord with your life, a non-believer just isn't on the same page with you. And so the problem is not, it's, it's, it's where dating ultimately leads, you see. Because a marriage, where you go into a marriage where one person is a believer and one person is not, which, which we won't marry here at Cornerstone. You can get married by the justice of the peace. But, but we want to make sure that two people want to stand before the Lord because they want their marriage to be under the lordship of Jesus. And if one is like, no, nah, I'm not into that, it's going to be an unequal marriage. You, you know, the idea of being yoked is obviously harnessing two, you know, like oxen together. And it, it, you're, you're supposed to be plowing in the same direction. And if one person has values that go this way and, and you as a Christian have values that go this way, you're going to be in constant friction. And, and the person might be a, you know, a super nice person and, and you're attracted to him or her and all the other things. But um, you know, do not live your life by the motto of flirt to convert. It does not work out well often. There are some exceptions. Um, you know, people will say, well, you know, it worked out for us. Okay, but it's, it's not God's best for you. And so I would just encourage you, um, you know, scripturally speaking, you need to find someone who is on the same page with you about the things of the Lord. Otherwise, you're going to get into decisions and, um, and principles and standards and values, even in your dating relationship, that can be compromised if you're not on the same page with all of that. Um, wanted to, we have probably time for one or two more did you want to answer the one about as a father, how do I show love and encourage? I was going to take that if you want to. Go ahead. Okay. So somebody says, as a father, how do I love and encourage my daughter to follow the Lord? And then the follow-up, is there a book? <laughs> I know that's an innocent question, but the book is right here. This is the book right here. Um, I, would, I would say this. You know... Our kids are part of our lives. They're grown now. They're married. Um, but if you were to ask any of our kids, and you're free to do this, don't, don't believe it just because I'm saying it. Um, you know, Austin, who gave the announcements, is one of, our, one of our sons, one of our kids. You're free to ask any of them. 
were mom and dad different at church than they were at home? Um, we're certainly not perfect. There were certainly times when, you know, there were some things that in every home, maybe you raise your voice too much or maybe you, you know, regret that decision or should have done this differently, raising your kids for sure. Uh, but I think one of the most important things is for you to live a consistent life yourself to be the best encouragement to your daughter, to your son, to your kids. Um, hypocrisy is just the worst turnoff to a kid who wants to learn what it means to, to grow up in the ways of the Lord. So make sure you are doing the best you can. And this is this person says, as a father. So dad, as the spiritual leader of your home, make sure that your walk is consistent. Make sure that your relationship with Jesus is strong. She'll see it. Sometimes the best lessons are caught, not taught. And, and likewise, some of the worst lessons are caught, not taught. She'll catch it when she sees you doing the best you can to love Jesus and to live as a godly man in your home. And then, yeah, I mean, just obviously, you know, read the Bible with her. And that's, that, that would be my, my best advice to you in terms of a book and, and your encouragement to her. Live your life in such a way that it's attractive to her, what you have with the Lord, that she wants that. Andy, I'll let you take the last question, then we'll pray. Okay. Um, we talked to dads. Um, now we can speak to husbands as well. A uh, question about how, um, how should husbands love their wives as Christ loved the church? So sometimes that, that um, trips um, guys up. They're trying to figure out, okay, I'm not perfect. I'm not Jesus. How do I love uh, the way that Jesus did? Um, but when I think about that verse, I think, okay, most of the time when I think about how did Jesus interact with the church, he was sacrificial. So for husbands or those who view who, um, young men who want to be married, be thinking about this, am I mature enough um, to be sacrificial, to be unselfish enough? Because Jesus died for the church. Jesus protected the church. He blessed the church. He served the church. He loved the church. So when you think about how, did, how, do I do, how do I love like Jesus loved the church, well, just think about all the things that Jesus did for the church. It just, he, he took care of them. Um, he, he, he sacrificed for them. So that when I think of that love, when, it, when um, Paul and, and when there's scripture in the gospel that just talks about husbands, love your wives, it's just that sense, it's that sacrificial. It's that I have your best interest in mind. It's, I'm, I'm going to make this decision with your best interest in mind. I'm, I'm going to communicate with your best interest in mind. I'm going to serve with your best interest in mind. And that's, that's the goal. That's the challenge. Now, we, most men in here would say, that's one of the most difficult. You sit there talking about that like it's so easy. It's one of the most difficult things to do is to, to love sacrificially. We're, we're so selfish. Our human nature is selfish. So we need him. The, the Bible tells us literally, rely on God's love. Rely on him to be able to do that. If you're going to serve, if you're going to love, if you're going to protect, if you're going to do those things, do those things in the strength that God provides. Don't try to do it in your own strength. So husbands, be on your knees asking, God, I need your help. Help me to love um, my wife sacrificially. Help me to love my family sacrificially, like Pastor Gary was saying, to your family. Help me love um, my children sacrificially and be an example to them. It's a, it's a difficult 
It's a difficult challenge, um, but he's never going to ask us to do something that he's not going to give us the strength to do. So we ask him for the strength to do it, and somehow, um, somehow we can do it as best, as best as we can, but in his strength with the help of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for your questions, everybody. All three services, we answered different questions, so we'll archive, we will archive these services all back-to-back in one long video if you're inclined to watch the whole thing. But um, otherwise, thank you for submitting your questions. Our apologies for not being able to get through everybody's questions, but let's pray. Lord, we just look to you always. We know that we have a lot of questions. You have all the answers, and we just thank you for your word that gives us guidance. And we uh, pray, Lord, over this coming year that you will bless the new year, that you will watch over us, take care of us, guide us, and direct us. We thank you for your many blessings over this past year. Go before us into a new year, and we give you the glory in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen.